0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Shen, and it is Tuesday, April 11th. Joining me this week via Skype is Mr. Daniel Klein. Hey, Dan, thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, Vince. Thanks for having me. Wish I was there.
0: Yeah, yeah. um, You will be in town, I believe, next week. But I
1: believe I believe you're gonna be out of town, so I'm. Uh, I think I'm doing a show with uh, Sarah Priestley.
0: Yes, yeah, so that will be out in a couple weeks. Um, it'll be interesting to have Sarah in the host seat. But for today, uh, fools, for this episode, Dan and I will be revisiting a few companies. In transition, I would describe that we have covered previously on the show before uh, we dive into a question from one of your fellow listeners. So, our first company in question is Viacom and their Paramount Pictures division. So, Dan, have you had a chance to make it to theaters yet to see Ghost in the Shell?
1: <laughs> I have not seen Ghost in the Shell, though I actually want to. Um, But this is one of those movies that just, the second you start to get the kind of negative publicity they got, unless the film is excellent, which reviews suggest it is not, you're in real trouble.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, Ghost in the Shell is Paramount Pictures' Biggest release of 2017 so far, and the box office performance, at least domestically, has been disappointing to say the least. And with the production budget estimated at well over 100 million dollars, uh, you know the film was largely overshadowed during its opening weekend by more family-friendly titles, including *Beauty and the Beast*, which is well on its way to, I think, a billion dollars worldwide gross, and *Boss Baby* from DreamWorks Animation. So, *Ghost in the Shell*'s box office underperformance, uh, I think, is quite ind- indicative. Kind of how films from Paramount and that studio have fared in the past few years. Um, you know, Paramount's a major studio, or is the major studio behind the Viacom's filmed entertainment segment. And Dan, when I looked through my show notes, we first talked about the drama going on behind the scenes at Viacom with the Redstone family. That was way back in May 2016. So, for listeners who have not followed the situation uh, as closely, can you just give a quick? 30 second summary of basically what happened and what's driving decisions right now at the company.
1: So basically, the long term management of Viacom was forced out by some combination of the Redstone family. We're not sure if it's Sumner. We're not sure if it's his daughter who's actually making the decisions. And a lot of that was based on the previous CEO and then his successor wanting to sell off Paramount. So now they're holding on to Paramount, and the problem is the movie world, especially with this, these big hundred million dollar tent poles, has moved to sort of. Short things your disney marvel movies your fast and the furious and paramount doesn't have many of those so when you're making ghost in the shell a property i'd never heard of you you have a lot more risk than than comcast and disney which just have these franchise machines
0: yeah and uh with some of the management you know uh the management uh Overhaul essentially that took place at the company with uh, Philippe Dauman being ousted along with uh, you know quite a few other members of the management team. Uh, Bob Akish now has taken on CEO role and it's clear in the latest quarterly results and the conference call that he's working to right the ship and lift results across the company. I think with a focus and vision it's probably been liking for a few years now. You know Viheim has seen revenues decline for about five years running. Uh, the worst of it, obviously, coming from this filmed entertainment segment. And in 2011, revenue for that segment stood at about 5.9 billion dollars. Last year, it came in at 2.7 billion, so shrinking from about 40% to just 20% of the top line for the company, quite significant. And then within that filmed entertainment segment, there's a few different businesses. There's theatrical, which is uh, what we're talking about now with uh, these movies, these big tentpole films. There's home entertainment, which includes things like DVD, Blu-ray sales, and also streaming deals, uh, licensing. Which is putting out some of their IP uh, for other uh, businesses to air, essentially, and all of those in that period from about 2011 to 2016 have seen huge declines, anywhere from 22 uh, percent for licensing to 70 percent, 72 percent for the theatrical business, and you know this is all in the context. Uh, of the fact that Paramount Pictures from 2007 to 2011 was all, was always either the number one or number two highest grossing studio for Hollywood. And then from 22 to 2016, it never even managed to break the top five.
1: The the problem they have, I mean, obviously they don't have the properties, but if you look at a Disney or, or a Comcast, they own many of the same assets. They have the cable channels, and when you're going to make a movie like Ghost in the Shell, you can introduce it to the audience. For example, Two years ago, there could have been a a show on Nickelodeon, introducing it to young children, there could have been specials on Spike. There's so many things you can do to prime the pump. And what Bob Backish has done in his, his re, reorganization of the company, is he's going to put them in a position to have a strategy where these aren't all siloed businesses, where filmed entertainment and TV talk the same way they do at Disney. And maybe they can, you know, they have a little bit of a theme park deal with some of their properties, but maybe they can make a theme park deal, because they don't own that. And they've got to figure out a way to either Get better properties, and that's very hard, or nurture something from TV to the movies, from the movie to TV, and just find a better way to get these properties in front of people. When you know, I have a 13 year old son, and the only time he'd ever heard of Ghost in the Shell was seeing the previews, whereas I don't think. Like boss baby was everywhere that 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 became a joke in my house. There were so many ads for it and places you could see it and pop culture references. and and that just isn't happening with Paramount
0: mm-hmm. so in addition to uh, Bob Backish, who's the new CEO for Viacom, there's also new leadership for Paramount Pictures. Um, that's uh, with Jim uh, Gannapolis. Uh, so he took the reins just last week and, yeah, you know, it's funny the way you described how a lot of the businesses at Vicom were kind of siloed off from each other. Uh, some people were describing the filmed uh, especially the theatrical division for the filmed entertainment segment as being almost as its own island in terms of the way it's operated, and in the ma- in the most recent earnings call, management has talked about how they're really trying to focus their efforts behind six of their major brands, and those include BET, Comedy Central, MTV, Nickelodeon, Nick Jr. and Paramount, and how they're trying to bring more film. To the television and more television properties to film as well. Um, for example, I, their Spike Network is now going to be rebranded in the next year or so. So I think by 2018, it's going to be the Paramount Network. And overall, um, you know, last question here, or from me, in, in terms of your view of this company, beyond. Um you know beyond bringing some of these bi- uh, these properties and this ip that they have to different uh ne- to different mediums and formats to kind of leverage that revenue and the profitability there as much as they can any other priorities do you see for either jim or bob moving forward uh, especially uh you have the recent news that before they had this potential 1 billion dollar financing deal uh, with some firms in china that potentially having fallen through what do you think
1: well, I mean, I'd stop making movies. <laughs> I, I, I think they, they have the problem that there is very little room in the marketplace for out-of-nowhere $200 million – movies. They, 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 You have to have a name property. So, if I own these assets, and clearly Sumner Redstone or Sherry Redstone does not want to do this, I would sell it off for parts. I mean, in many ways, Viacom is a company, like a kid who collects baseball cards and did it based on volume. Based, instead of having the best cards, he has a lot of cards. So, they have all these TV networks, and MTV and Spike, those have value, but maybe they have more value if owned by somebody else. And Paramount you <laughs> if you're making movies just because you have to fill out a film slate every year, well, you're going to spend $300 million to make $200 million time after time after time. They either need to slow down and just make Transformers films and genre movies that are are more reasonable budgets and try to revive a China deal, because if you have local partnership in China, then you can get your films released in the limited number of slots there are there. And with Ghost in the Shell, that's not going to save its profitability, but being released in China China, is actually going to take a movie that would have been talked about as a colossal loss and make it perhaps more of a manageable loss. Um, you know that's not good news, but it's sort of like saying uh, you know, hey, Vince, the, uh, the bad news is you're dying, the good news it's going to be 20 years from now. <laughs> so yeah, it, um, but, but I, I just think the smart thing to do is to take the assets that make sense, Uh, within the Viacom CBS family, because the Redstones also own CES, hold on to those, merge them with uh, CBS, and then sell off the rest of the parts. Because right now, you have a lot of stuff that just isn't going to work well together, and a film studio that is not set up to run like a film studio needs to run in 2017.
0: Yep. And I will add that the non-voting B-shares uh, for Viacom, uh, they've generally traded about between 35 and $45 per share for some time now. Uh, that gives them a forward price to earnings valuation of less than 12 times. Um, so, generally, uh, quite, quite, I guess, cheap at this point. But it, oh, for you, Dan, is this a buy? Um, Do you buy into the turnaround no. at least? I- Here's the thing, I do think they're going to stabilize, I think they have good
1: management in place, but when you have the person who has the overall control, is of questionable mental health, and dealing with his child who may or may not be on the same page as him, I don't like any of that palace intrigue, and until that gets settled, until I know, okay, Sherry Redstone is making the decisions, this is where it's going to go, um, no, I'm staying away from it because the factors that can influence this company go well beyond whether they can figure out how to spend less money or make profitable movies.
0: Yep. Okay. Uh, so, our next update now, moving on, uh, is for the Cabela's and Bass Pro Shop deal. So. This merger uh, was originally announced last October in what appeared to be a pretty slam dunk transaction, I think, bringing together two of the largest outdoor gear and sports retailers. Uh, But there have been a lot of headaches and uh, a lot of uncertainty regarding whether the deal would actually go through. Uh, What's the story here, Dan? It's a
1: very bizarre sort of hang-up so there were you know, you always have to when you write this story say regulatory concerns (laughs) There was there was perhaps a small amount of concern that because Staple's Office Depot wasn't approved That maybe we just had a governmental environment where if the two biggest players in a field got together They were just gonna say no But, I think the reality is, the Trump administration is probably not going to deny this deal on that level. But what happened was, one of the conditions of the deal was Cabela's selling its credit card unit, effectively its in-house loyalty card. And there was very quickly announced on the same day back in October, uh, there was a deal with Capital One. And the problem is, Capital One has its own regulatory concerns, not necessarily related to that deal. That was going to make that impossible and push things past some of the deadlines. And what's happened is a small regional bank, Synovus, and I apologize if I'm pronouncing that wrong, has stepped in, and it looks like they're going to purchase the assets, eventually sell some of them to Capital One, but effectively clear the way for the Cabela's Bass Pro Shops deal, which everyone still seems to want to have happen to happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the key to this all is was that uh, was Cabela's. Credit card business and finding some way to pass that on, and you know, with the Synovus agreement, from what I've seen, uh, they will hold on to the deposits they get from the intra- from that transaction and then pass the credit card business itself on to Capital One and. You know some of the backstory behind why Capital One was having a hard time closing that part of the agreement uh, in time, based on the broader deal between Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's, had to do with a money laundering investigation. So now, uh, you know, with that, generally it seems kind of like this white knight situation, somebody stepping in, save the day. I think uh, overall investors are still pretty. Uh, bullish on this deal and the idea of bringing together, uh, you know, these two leading names, essentially, uh, well known, of course, for their uh, large and very uh, appealing, I guess, uh, brick and mortar, oper- uh, brick and mortar. A physical presence, you know, with these huge stores bringing in a lot of customers, trying to maintain traffic. But at the same time, I think investors were a little bit discouraged, you know, if, uh, by Cabela's in their year-end results. So these reported back in February, uh, comparable store sales declined six point five percent in the fourth quarter, and online and catalog sales, which really surprised me, took an even bigger hit of twelve point four percent. So if anything, kind of showing that. Uh, you know, brick and mortar, having struggled so much uh, in the past few quarters, you see these headlines, store closures, bankruptcies. Um, you know this consolidation might be the way for these two it- companies, the best way for these two companies to proceed.
1: It is worth noting that Cabela's and Bass Pro Shops run the kind of store that's still going to exist after the retail shakeout. Mm -hmm. They have destination stores. You might go to Cabela's, and you don't have kids yet, but my son and I, we've talked about this on the show before, we used to go to Cabela's to play the games, look at fishing rods, eat lunch, gaze at guns, every little boy likes guns, you know, get a piece of fudge in their candy store. So those stores are going to be resilient, but I think they're bumping up again. Against you know some industry concerns, but more the kind of malaise that sets in when, as employees, you don't know what's happening next. I mean, the Cabela's brand name may disappear. they we, you know, none of this has really been decided. So, if you're in the marketing department or the digital department at Cabela's and you're sort of waiting for this other shoe to drop, I'm not precisely sure you're advancing plans as if nothing has happened, even though that's what you're supposed to do. So, some of this might just be. Everybody thought this deal was going to be closed by now and it wasn't. And, you know, some of it is a little bit cyclical, but, you know, people are still going to go to these stores. They're, they're entertainment as much as they are shopping.
0: All right. Well, on that note, uh, we have a very relevant question from one of our listeners that I do wanted to cover uh, to close out the show. And this is very much tied to the outdoors industry or, you know, the outdoor equipment industry. Um, so this question, and, um, and remember, Fools, you can always reach out to us. At industryfocus at full.com, if you want, uh, have any comments or questions for the team here. But Clifford asks, Hey, do you have a source that confirms that the outdoor equipment market is not shrinking? My suspicion is that with the changing face of America, many people just aren't fishing or hunting or camping. And at first glance, uh, you know, you consider some of the major challenges that we talked about with brick and, mo- brick and mortar chains, uh, brands that have encountered in general over the past uh, year or so. And, you know, just some examples: Sports Authority gone, City Sports gone, Vestas retail, which operated Eastern Mountain Sports, Bob's Stores, and Sports Chalet. Those chains it declared bankruptcy last summer, reemerged as Eastern Outfitters, and then in just in the past week, Eastern Outfitters announced they'll be closing a number of stores. You know, obviously, it the, the their bounce back has not been as successful as they hoped. So it seems like Clifford might be onto something in terms of you know these outdoor uh, retailers just. Um, Finding themselves facing a smaller market than what we may. Uh, have previously had. Dan, have you taken your son hunting or fishing at all, even camping? <laughs> We've gone fishing,
1: um, but so knowing we we're going to talk about this, I danced around this a little bit in the last segment, and I think it's fair to say that there's some softness in some of these markets. Perhaps you're right. There, there might be less hunting. We've talked a little bit about that gun sales in general, which were at all-time highs due to fears that uh, President Obama might pass some regulations against guns. Uh, have softened a little bit, there, or at least there's some fear that they're going to soften. So, there absolutely could be a lower demand, but I don't see how the lower demand has caught up to the incredible loss of retail capacity. You know, if, if you're Cabela's, you've seen competitors go out of business or get a lot smaller left and right. So, clearly, the Amazons and the REIs and the people who are succeeding in this space, and Dick's to a, a very small extent, they they have grown and you know there might be a smaller pie but there's less people going after that and you know I absolutely have have I gone fishing sure but how often do you buy a new fishing rod yeah, I mean you 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 bought camping supplies this year did where did you get them
0: uh, I I admittedly went online for a lot of that uh, through some s- companies that do have their uh, a, a major uh, physical store presence like REI as you mentioned which is privately held um, and sometimes you know on an Amazon or somewhere that's just a strict online operation. Um, I have data here specifically though from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that shows ongoing declines in the number of hunters and fishermen in this country over the past several decades. in 1970, I think it was 40 million Americans had hunting licenses compared to just 14 million or so today. And you have to keep in mind as well that the country's population has grown uh, in that same time period from about 200 million to over 320 million. So the rate of participation is even gloomier, I would say. And fishing fare is a little bit better. With estimates that the number of anglers in the US is at about 40 to 50 million. But even then, participation among, especially the youth, and you know, called the next generation of fishermen um, and hunters, both of these activities, they show a far less encouraging outlook. But there's still huge multi billion dollar industries, right? And I think the bright spot is uh, Clifford mentioned uh, camping as well. And despite what uh, you know, amounts to a huge number of entertainment alternatives and activities out there that are available to people today. Think, uh, you know, the internet, streaming television, video games, school sports—all these activities uh, that keep both adults and younger uh, consumers and kids uh, busy these days—they haven't really completely. Abandoned uh, the outdoors. National Park Service actually reported record visitation in recent years with annual visitors topping 300 million. So, pretty impressive in that regard. Um, But the last point I will make, and you uh, brought up the uh, gun sales and gun ownership, and that's uh, really reflected even in Cambello's results. So, they have their hunting equipment, which includes firearms, uh, scopes. Archery equipment and you know related accessories and supplies. So hunting equipment, as a percentage of Cabela's sales, went up from forty percent in twenty ten to forty eight percent in twenty sixteen. And this, I would say, generally reflected a huge boom period uh, during the uh, administration administration for President Obama in gun sales. But
1: then, what it comes
0: down to, it you know the there's definitely a lot of debate in terms of uh, you know gun ownership. Different surveys, different data. Is it actually going down? You have record, you know, these record sales. Is it more people buying fire firearms? Um, uh, But the the rate of ownership among households is declining. What do you think, Dan?
1: Well, there was compelling pressure, at least you know, in in a certain political lobby to when you had a, a Democrat who was perceived as being anti-gun, though he never particularly did anything anti-gun, in charge, to go out right now and buy guns. And that created a bit of a frenzy, because if you're a gun manufacturer, let's say Sturm Ruger. You are going to be very careful about increasing capacity because if you if you build a new factory, which they did a couple of years ago, but if you build a new factory for short-term demand without factoring in that that demand may cool off, you're going to end up with a lot of excess factory space and all of the all of the negatives that go with that. So during this whole peak period. Even as there were ebbs and flows in how people felt about Obama, the gun sales were still high because a guy got on a waiting list for the model he wanted nine months before and then he got it. We're still dealing with the industry sort of shaking some of that off. And I do think there will be a softening because there is no possibility of upcoming gun legislation at least until 2018 guns are not cheap so if you already own a few of them you, you you know you're probably going to back off but the reality is the cabelas and the bass pro shops are so diverse in what they sell i think the 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 mistake here might be them not shifting their merchandise or their focus based on you know changing needs if camping is more popular than fishing you know the the cabelas i went to in connecticut pretty regularly didn't change that much their their displays their allocation of space was about the same and maybe that's something you know that the merged company can deal with and you know traditional retailers you know do a lot more seasonal moving around than maybe some of these sporting goods type re- retailers that obviously they deal with seasons winter summer but you know maybe you do need to massively change how much space you allocate for fishing uh, in certain markets because it's not as popular the same with hunting and you know the same with all the other categories
0: yep. So for Clifford, uh, final takeaways. I think um, it's interesting to see kind of this balance ultimately that you know with hunting and fishing, with that ongoing decline, you still have you know what amount to be very significant uh, businesses for these various chains and retailers. And I think the best way uh, that you put it in was with kind of shifting that product mix and. During they the... Need to, you know, during they need the, to get
1: more sophisticated. Yeah, exactly. You know, when your competitor is Amazon, and, and I think we're seeing this with, with Costco and some of the other companies we're talking about, no matter how immune your business is, eventually the sheer efficiency of Amazon and their 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 one-click ordering, their their return process I just bought something from a third party on Amazon that never showed up, even though they said they, sh- they shipped it, and within 48 hours I had a complete refund. That's where the, the old world retailers like Cabela's and Bass Pro Shops, they're still thinking like physical stores and they need to go more like Costco and Walmart and say, "Okay, we have this asset of physical stores, how do we tie that into now we're not limited to just what we have here. Where we have this entire world of stores. You can try it here. You can buy one that's there. The size doesn't fit. We have that in another place. You can drop off a return. And they've really got to step that that up. And I'd love to see Bass Pro Shops when this these companies uh, combine, do what Mark Laurie from Walmart has said, and go out and buy a startup. Go go hire some talent and really rethink how you approach all of this for the digital age.
0: Yep. And you know, I'll say too, just with firearm sales, for example, you know, I think that is still a space where the the uh, physical presence is still uh, really important to buyers there, and it makes sense that some of these, uh, you know, during the uh, Obama administration when sales were really booming, they obviously shifted their product mix. Now it just seems like they'll be shifting again potentially if that part of the industry is softening, and you know. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, if camping is more popular, especially with, for example, the national park visitation numbers going higher. But any other uh, final takeaways from you, Dan, before we wrap up? Uh,
1: there is no scenario where I will be camping, but if you'd like to go shooting at sometime time, that, uh, that seems like a good
0: time. Alright, well, there you go. Uh, thanks again for joining us today, Dan. Fools, again, you can reach out to us and the rest of the Industry Focus crew via Twitter at mfindustryfocus or send any questions to industryfocus at fool.com. People on the program may own companies discussed in the show and The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening and Fool on!